1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting to read at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let us pray. Our Father God, we pray that you will speak to our minds and hearts and that we will respond in obedience to your word and in thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me remind you that this series at 11.15 on the first Sunday in the month, January to April, we're looking at the comfortable words or words of comfort that have been part of the liturgy of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion since Cranmer inserted them at the time of the Reformation. And the purpose of the words is to remind the worshippers what God in his mercy has done for them in the life and death of Jesus. Take up your service sheets, if you will, open them up, and go to the top right-hand corner. The first word of comfort is Jesus' promise of rest to those who follow him as disciples. The second word of comfort reminds us of the reconciling work of Christ, which was the purpose of the Incarnation. And our third word of comfort, which we're going to look at today, is this one. Hear what St. Paul says. This saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The translation in the Bibles in the chairs is slightly different, but the meaning is exactly the same. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And our task this morning is to understand to save sinners. What is salvation? What is the state from which sinners are being saved? And I want to suggest to you that it may help us to think of salvation in terms of rescue The word salvation is not much used or understood in common parlance, and it's probably associated in most people's minds 
with religious teachings. But save or rescue are widely used. We talk hopefully about the English cricket or rugby team being saved from defeat by some heroic or inspired play. But our hopes are seldom fulfilled. We've recently heard a great deal about financial institutions being rescued by a package put together by the government. And we're going to hear more about the need to rescue the car industry. On another tack, Green's campaign to save areas of natural beauty or the habitats of rare frogs. And art lovers' campaign to save works of art for the nation. There's something very special, isn't there, about a dramatic rescue. Week before last, the media made much of an incident where a helicopter ditched in the North Sea close to an oil platform. And before that, we had the dramatic rescue of the passengers of the aircraft which ditched in the Hudson River in New York. And the key ingredients are human life and survival are at risk, There is an element of urgency, action must be immediate, and there is an element of exceptional skill or heroism on the part of the rescue team. So I want to suggest to you that the idea of salvation or rescue is in fact commonplace in our culture and media. It's not an abstract theological uh, concept. There's no doubt that when St. Paul was writing to uh, Timothy, he had various Old Testament references to salvation and being saved in his mind. And in the Old Testament, salvation comes in three forms. In each case, there is a common theme of rescue from oppression or hostility from evil forces that are ranged against not just God's people, but against God himself in his purposes for his people. Let's start way back with the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15, a song celebrating the exodus from Egypt. Let me read you verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And that's in the context of a graphic poetic description of the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. God's people have been rescued from a brutal regime which was determined to keep them in slavery and prevent them from becoming truly the people of God. And it's no surprise that in the Old Testament generally, in Old Testament thought, Egypt is a symbol of evil forces in opposition to God. But by far the most numerous references to saving and salvation occur in the Psalms. Some refer back to the Exodus, but many, at least 15 in my count, speak of the psalmist being rescued from his enemies. Let me read you as an example Psalm 9 and verses 13 and 14. O Lord, See how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises 
in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. On the face of it, it could refer to any of the many occasions when David was assailed by personal enemies, by King Saul and his henchmen when David was on the run, by rebellious subjects when David eventually himself became king. But what is interesting about the Psalms is that they always put this in a wider context. The hostile and evil forces that are seeking to destroy David are also explicitly seeking to frustrate God's purposes for his people, not least their unity and security. And then the third context in the Old Testament is God's rescue of his people from exile in Babylon, a key theme of the book of Isaiah. Let me read you just one example, Isaiah 52 and verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The oppression which God's people suffered in Babylon was much more subtle than that of Egypt. It was intellectual and spiritual pressures to conform, and hence the prophet's repeated condemnation of Babylonian idolatry. You see, it was easy to accommodate, and many of the Jewish people did, and they didn't take up the opportunity to return to Judah and Jerusalem when it came. It was just as effective as Egyptian brutality in undermining the loyalty and the community of God's people, a hostile and evil environment from which God's people needed to be delivered. And note, too, that Isaiah sees this particular deliverance as a paradigm for a much wider scheme of salvation or rescue for all mankind, as was foreseen in Isaiah 42, which we have had read and sung this morning. So when we come to the New Testament... What does it do? Well, it takes this Old Testament understanding, but it carries it forward. And in particular, it identifies sin as an evil force or structure that enslaves, from which we need rescue. Do you recall Jesus' words in John 8, verse 34? I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And it is, of course, a key theme of St. Paul's exposition of the gospel in Romans. Let me take two examples. Chapter 6 and verse 16. When you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Or chapter 7 and verse 14, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And there's much more along similar lines in chapters 7 and 8. So in what ways can a person be enslaved by sin? 
Let me suggest three possibilities. There may well be others. First of all, a person may be a slave to his or her passions. Colossians 3.5, Paul lists what belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. These are, of course, mostly what one might call the news of the world sins, sexual immorality and attitudes of mind associated with it. I believe people are now described as being addicted to sex. And we have, of course, in our Christian, uh, our Christian history, the example of John Newton, who found it impossible to refrain from sexual abuse of young female fra- slaves on his slave trading vessel in the late 18th century. But note that Paul includes in his list greed. Primarily, of course, food and drink. But any obsession with things that pamper our bodies. And he describes greed as idolatry. Worshipping the things rather than God. But we can also be slaves to ignorance and unbelief. Let's look again at 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16, which we had read. This is on pages, page 1191 in the Bibles. In verse 16, Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners. But of course, his sins had absolutely nothing to do with his passions. He was an upright Pharisee. Rather, in verse 13, he refers to himself as a persecutor, a blasphemer, and a violent man. His sin was, if you like, ideological. His wrong convictions as a Pharisee about Jesus had led him to attack the emerging Christian church. As he notes in verse 13, he acted in ignorance and unbelief. I fear that many intelligent young people today are being captured by the ideology of militant atheism, which is being propagated in this city by Richard Dawkins and his ilk. Most of the young will not, of course, have read The God Delusion, but that does not prevent them from assuming that Christian faith is not only wrong, but extremely dangerous. So we've had a person being a slave to their passions. We have someone, persons being slaves to ignorance and unbelief. But I believe there's a third category, which maybe is much more common. And I want to describe this as someone being a slave to a meaningless life. They're not evidently captured by the passions. And they're probably pretty tolerant or indifferent to the claims of Jesus Christ. But they've got nothing more than ordinary lives. Working, eating, looking after the house and garden, caring for their children, taking holidays, 
doing their bit in the community, but without any purpose other than keeping going and living life as it comes towards them. But they too are slaves to sin. Their lives are lived without reference to the God who made them and loved them. And all those three groups of slaves need rescue. Now, how Jesus Christ saves sinners will be the subject of the sermon on the fourth of the words of comfort in early April. But for the time being, let's leave it like this. If you are still a slave to sin, to your passions, to ideas that diminish and disparage God, or maybe just trapped in a meaningless, ordinary life, then ask Jesus to rescue you, as he has countless others over the past 2,000 years and in our day across the globe. But then if you have been rescued already, then join with Moses and Miriam, with the psalmist, with Isaiah, to rejoice at your salvation. And do not allow yourself to drift back into slavery. Why not use this Lent to examine your life for the danger signals? It is not for nothing that the Holy Communion service is also called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. We have everything in our salvation to be thankful for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have rescued us from slavery to sin. As we come to the supper which you provided for us, may our hearts be full of thanksgiving and praise. And as we go out from this place at the end of the service, may we be determined not to slip back into slavery. Amen.